Today's sermon is going to be from Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 15. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning him, concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, in more than a prophet. This is he of whom it, it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You can be seated. It is, as I say every week, a blessing to be here with all of you and to look out and even see some new faces this week and just to consider the providence of God that has been active in each of our lives to bring us to this place this morning. That we consider throughout all history that nothing happens by accident. That God has purpose in history, purpose in the movement through time, purpose in how he directs each person's lives, how he um, moves the heart of kings in his hands as though it's water through his hands. So as I see everyone here, I, I just, I'm overwhelmed by what God has done and is doing and just reminded about how he works through things that seem, um, seem small at times, seem insignificant, yet he brings about uh, events that change nations as he moves his people and as he guides our lives. So I am thankful for you here this morning. I'm thankful for what God is doing among us. And I'm thankful for the passage that we arrive at in our study of the Gospel of Matthew this morning, trusting that God's Spirit will speak through me, that He is powerful enough and wise enough to, to block anything that I might say or the way I might say it. Uh, that would steer you off course, that he can hold you fast, and that, in fact, he will work through me, through the preaching of his word, to conform you to Christ, to guide you in your steps, and to build his kingdom. So as we prepare to approach God's word, I ask that you would join me in prayer. Father, we are in awe of your wonder we are in awe of your majesty. We are just truly amazed that you would call such as us to love us, to redeem us, 
to send your son and to gather us to him that we might proclaim his majesty among the nations and be tools in your hand to build your kingdom on this earth. Father, use your word this morning to conform us to Christ. Use your word to guide us. Use your word to convict us of sin. First the preacher and then those who hear. Grant us repentance where it is necessary and greater obedience moving forward. Pray all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, last week we talked about John the Baptist's doubts. As he sat in Herod Antipas's prison, John had time to take a real good hard look at everything that had happened, everything that he had experienced since that day, which probably same, seemed like so long before when he saw Christ and he was able to say, this is the one who God told me about. This is the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. This is the Son of God. Since he made that bold proclamation as he was preaching to the masses. But as he sat in prison, that would have seemed like a, a distant memory, a lifetime ago. And he doubted. John didn't see what he expected that he would see. At the arrival of the Messiah of God, he expected it must be different. It couldn't look like that. The herald of the arriving king couldn't meet his end in some grimy dungeon. And so he doubted. We saw that Jesus dealt very kindly with John in his doubts. He didn't harshly rebuke him. He didn't say, how dare you question me? He didn't tell him, no, you need to look back and remember what you saw. Remember what you heard so long ago. No, Jesus heard the doubts of John and graciously gave him evidence that you don't think I'm doing what the Messiah was supposed to come and do? And then he gave them the evidence. The evidence was the seeing blind, the hearing deaf, the walking lame, the walking dead, the healed of those healed of diseases, those healed of deformity, those healed from evil spirits, and those poor and wretched souls who had good news proclaimed to them. Jesus was, in fact, doing exactly what the Messiah was supposed to come and do, according to the prophecy that had been given so long ago by Isaiah. And he ended in that discussion of, of John's doubts by saying, Blessed is he who does not take offense because of me. Blessed is the one who does not evaluate the life and the ministry of Jesus and see it as unfitting of God's Messiah. Blessed is the one who has not caused to stumble because of what he sees in Christ. Well, through this exchange, it was inevitable that some people in the crowd were going to walk away with an opinion of John the Baptist that was less than what was deserved. 
that they were going to read too much into the fact that John, as he sat in prison, had questions. And that was something that Jesus simply was not prepared to allow. So from the defense that Jesus made of his actually being the Messiah, we see Jesus move to making defense of John the Baptist. As we read in verse 7, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go to the wilderness to see? What did these people, most of whom would have gone out previously to see John as he was making such a commotion in Israel, what did you go out to see? What was it that drew you out there when you heard of this man? What was it that made you want to go see him, to hear him, to be baptized by him? This is the prelude to three rhetorical questions that Jesus will ask this crowd concerning John. And he is going to point out to them what should be obvious, that John, regardless of the questions or the doubts that he might have had for a moment, John was strong, faithful, resolute, unwavering. He was a mighty man of God. first rhetorical question that Jesus asked the crowd was, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Now, to be sure, if you'd have gone to the wilderness in that region in that time, you'd have seen reeds all over the place as, as giant blades of grass, and you'd be able to see that they bent and they flowed with where, whatever way the wind was blowing. That imagery should be stark to each and every one of us. Every summer when we drive by through the fields, we see wheat flowing with the wind as though it was green waves covering the earth. We, we understand that imagery of, of the blade that, that just blows and goes wherever the prevailing winds push it. Yet that isn't what Jesus was talking about. He wasn't reminding them of the scenery that they went out to the wilderness and would have seen. The reed in the wind was a common rabbinic idiom representing a certain type of man. The kind of man who is pliable and ever-changing. The kind of man who gets caught up in whatever wind is prevalent in the day, whatever is popular, whatever sways the masses. So as the people were tempted to reevaluate John, because of his doubts, Jesus pointed them back and he asked them, did you go out to the wilderness just to see a man who was pliable and just flowed with the wind and with the masses? Did they go out to see a man who would just bend to every societal pressure? A man who would cave to anything? Is that the kind of man that piqued such an interest in Israel? Well, no, of course not. That isn't the kind of man that somebody would make any effort to go out and see. Those men are common. Those kind of men can be found everywhere. That isn't the kind of man that John was. Even if John had a time of doubt, he did not waver in his mission or in his message. He did not bend to the winds of social pressure. He stood strong and unyielding even though he was proclaiming the message that would bring about his death, something that he no doubt saw in the not-too-distant future. 
John may not have understood why things turned out the way they did. It may have caused him to question, but he did not allow what he doubted to override what he knew to be true. It has been said that one should never doubt in the darkness what God has shown them in the light. That is good advice for those times when our circumstances and the frailty of our emotions battle against our faith and our assurance. That is the wisdom that John lived out. Even if he had questions, he remained faithful to what God had called him. So no, a reed shaken by the wind is not what everybody had gone out to the wilderness to see. Quite the opposite. In an age where the spiritual leaders of the people re resembled groups of reeds waving this way and that, the people had gone out to see a man who would not yield, a man who would not be bent to the purposes of anyone but God. The modern equivalent of a reed shaken by a wind might be a pastor or religious leader who can be seen bending this way or that, flowing with whatever way the winds blow. The kind of man who may even at times stand up and say, I am a strong defender of God's word. I will not be moved. And yet, even though for a time they may seem to stand, uh, they only do so up until it costs them something. The craftier among this kind of men may not adopt every change in pressure, every change in direction wholesale, yet these kind of men, these reeds shaken in the wind, are adept at checking for the direction of the wind, to seeing where things are going. They know when to soften their language on this or when to remain silent on that. They know when they need to embrace some new idea, some new mantra, and they know what they need to stay clear of to avoid the crosshairs of the gatekeepers of proper society. We have plenty of examples of these kind of religious leaders among us, these kind of reeds shaken by the wind, and we have seen them clearly over the past few years. Men who have accepted and promoted the calls for inclusion and tolerance. Men who want to appear virtuous and magnanimous so that they even try to get ahead of things. They name themselves racists and bigots so everybody will see how well I repent, how well I bow down before people, before the spirit of the age. And they dare to claim that guilt over all of Christ's church. Men who preached what was only a slightly watered-down version of the godless ideologies of intersectionality and critical race theory. We have no shortage of religious leaders who, when it became too offensive to the culture, toned down their warnings against the rampant sexual immorality in the land. Turned down their warnings against perversity, of homosexuality, transsexualism, and gender confusion. The same kind of ever-changing men who remain silent 
at the wicked overreach of an out-of-control government domineering over the lives of its citizens and over our churches, some of them even becoming the greatest advocates for the states, happily changing the message of the gospel to include wearing a mask or injecting yourself with a cocktail of untested ingredients. And a display of just how easily some of these men can be swayed one way to the other, some of them have even begun to try to come back and act as though they, they hadn't gone as far as they did. Because of all the evidence that's coming out about the ineffectiveness of, of masks and mandates and, and, and vaccines, all those kind of things. Some people are trying to come back and act as though they hadn't pushed them so hard, that they hadn't tried to bind the consciences of God's people to accept something that was out of Scripture. Some are realizing that God's people will not tolerate, His true people will not tolerate the poison of wokeness and as they see the tide change, they want to come back and act as though they never promoted intersectionality. They never called themselves and the entire church of God racist. And while we should rejoice at any time the truth of God is proclaimed, we must also beware of men that change so freely. Especially when that change predictively follows the direction of the prevailing winds and not conviction wrought by God's spirit that works itself out in open repentance and weeping before the people and then a determination to stand from that moment in faithfulness. Faithful men do not sway like that. John was such a man. He stood strong in the face of the pressure all around him. That is the kind of man that the church needs to follow. That's the kind of man that needs to be in leadership in the church. And I expect that if you ever start to see me swaying one way or the other, checking for the direction of the wind to see how we should act, which way I should go, I expect that you will call me to repentance. And I expect that if I will not repent, then you will no longer follow me. The second rhetorical question that Jesus asked the crowd was, What then did you go out to see? A man in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Once again, this was obvious. If anybody knew anything about John, he wasn't soft. He was a man in the wilderness. You know, real men used to know how to survive in the wilderness. Some of these skills, these manly traits that most of us have lost. John survived by himself in the wilderness. John wore a cloak of hair with a leather belt. He ate locusts and honey. John was hardcore. And the people knew it. John was anything but soft. He was a strong man. He was a hard man. He was a wild man. As with the reed, there was much more underlying this description of a man in soft clothing. A man in soft clothing represented somebody who took the easy path to success. 
somebody who courted the favor of the wealthy and the powerful so that they could live in the luxury and lifestyle of the luxury of the, the rich and powerful. To have the th finer things in life, if we desire the finer things in life, we either have to become wealthy and powerful and obtain them for ourselves, or you have to be supported by those who have them. And in our context of a passage this morning, the conversation will be concerning the religious leaders who had the soft clothing. Much as is often done today, the religious leaders of that day gained their metaphorical and sometimes literal soft clothing, this, these luxuries of the rich and powerful, by soothing the consciences of the rich and powerful, by giving the lifestyles of the rich and powerful a sense of legitimization. Instead of naming the sins of those who were wealthy, those who were influential, religious leaders would hide them. They would mask them. They would change their sermons as so as not to point it out and thereby to be able to claim all along the way the righteousness of those from whom they were getting such benefits. They showed partiality something that God clearly says that he hates. Well, look around us today, and you will see religious leaders enjoying the soft clothing of the wealth, wealthy and powerful. You will see religious leaders standing in the good graces of powerful elites and politicians. You can see how they give a sense of respectability because now these, these politicians or these elites get to claim this connection to these holy men, to these, these godly people. All while those supposed men of God refrain from calling out their sin or holding them to God's standard. And yes, you do see this on both sides of the proverbial aisle. Men and women who champion the murder of the unborn and who champion the mutilation of the hormones and the physical bodies of children are invited all the time into churches and celebrated as doing the Lord's work. This happens all the time. Well, on the other side, serial philanderers who come up with new ways to boast in themselves, who are known for having no concern for God's law and God's standard or God's people, are, are built up and touted as the saviors of the church and democracy, held up by spiritual leaders that are just desperate to, for somebody to come in and please rescue the church rescue the nation from their descent into irrelevance. Yet John was unwilling to honor wicked men. John was unwilling even to hold his tongue. He would not be silenced. So he went to the highest authority in the local region, called out his sins, said he needed to repent. He was guilty and he named his sin. With the following that John had, 
because he had the masses following him in the wilderness, John, if he would have wanted to, if he would have played his cards right, John could have had a seat at any table of any king or any ruler in all the land. Everybody would have welcomed him in just to gain on his popularity. If he would have only been able to keep his mouth shut and remain silent about the wickedness he saw in the land. Yet John not only rejected the soft clothing of the powerful, he specifically called out their sins by name and he demanded repentance. The king needed to repent. The king was under the judgment of God and needed to repent lest he be destroyed. John rejected the winsome softness of effeminate men who are eternally careful to walk the line and stay clear of controversy. That kind of weak and soft men who desire nothing more than to maintain their place of influence and to stay out of the crosshairs of cultural drivers. It has been said that we don't need careful men as much as we need faithful men. Faithful men who will stir things up when it's necessary, who will cause change, who will get involved, who will be a problem. The faithful men will come, or the, the careful men will come later and praise the faithful men for their courage. Again, have nothing to do with that kind of winsome and effeminate soft man in the leadership of the church. That only will bring about the decay and decline where there is not strength and vision and clarity and direction. A soft and generally winsome demeanor is not what the church needs in her leaders. We need men like John. We need men who are strong, who are unyielding, who are more concerned with the glory of God than they are with the feelings of sinful men. Beloved, rugged masculinity, as it is defined by biblical masculinity, as it was modeled by John and Jesus, isn't toxic. Masculinity is not toxic. Quite the contrary. It is a cure and a protection against the kind of moral decay and confusion that we see everywhere around us. Well, Jesus continued with the third rhetorical question for the people concerning John. What then did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. So no, the people did not go out to see a man who would bend and move with whatever prevailing wind there was. They did not go out to see a soft man dressed in fine clothing, enjoying the trappings of the wealthy and powerful. They went out to see a prophet. For the significance of that statement to really hit home for us, we need to remind ourselves a little bit about the history of the nation of Israel. 
For centuries, it was actually quite common for, for God to send prophets to his people. That there was many times where there was multiple prophets, um, prophets among the nation of Israel. Sometimes there was whole schools of prophets. There's times in scripture where we'll see a group of prophets, prophets referenced and nothing told about them as though it was just commonplace. That there were prophets among the people. That God spoke through his prophets to the people. Yet when we get to the time of John... God had not sent a prophet to his people for some 400 years. Ten generations had come and gone since the last prophet had brought in new revelation from God to his people. And if you look at the message of Malachi, the last prophet that God sent to his people, the final word that they heard from God was not a message of encouragement and hope. The priests had polluted their offerings. Judah had profaned the covenants. Man had robbed God of what was rightfully his. And the great and terrible day of the Lord was coming. The last words that they received from God was of destruction. And then there was silence. Centuries of silence. Into that setting, consider the arrival of John the Baptist, a man who both looked the part of the prophets of old, appearing very much as Elijah had so long before, and carrying the kind of bold message of warning that so often had been carried through God's prophets. A man who had a sense of otherness about him, whose lifestyle carried symbolism and significance. He came out of the wilderness. He ate locusts and honey. He wore a garment of hair with a leather belt. He, he did not consume alcohol, eating and drinking and feasting and eat, enjoying any of the luxuries of life. It is no wonder that John caused such a spectacle in Israel. The whole land went out to see him. Because for the first time in 400 years, a prophet of God walked among them. An unbending, unwavering, rugged and hard man. A man who told them that the great and terrible day of the Lord that they had been promised and prophesied for so long before, that it was near, it was very close. Remember the imagery again. The axe was already at the root of the tree with no promise that there was any way for the axe to be removed. It was there. The blow was coming. That the wheat and the chaff were being separated. It was going to happen so that the wheat could be secured and so that the chaff could be burned. This was the word that John said was near. This was about to happen. Jesus acknowledged John as a prophet, and yet he acknowledged John as more than a prophet. So John was not just a prophet, he was himself the fulfillment of prophecy. He was the prophesied prophet. Jesus quoted from Malachi 3.1, and I think it'll be helpful if we see some more of the context from Malachi. So turn with me to Malachi 3, and we'll just look at the first three verses. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament just before Matthew. So Malachi 3, 1 through 3. 
Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sift as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. John was the messenger who was to go and prepare a way for the arrival of God to his people. He was to warn the people about their sin, and he was to leave no doubt about what was about to happen and why it would happen. God was coming to judge, and who could stand before him when he came? Well, Jesus continued in verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So yes, the the greatness of John was found in the way that he stood resolute and faithful. Yet ultimately, the greatness of John the Baptist was due to his closeness to Christ. That John was greater even than Abraham. God, John was greater than Elijah. John was greater than David or Solomon because of his close relationship to Christ. All before had, had pointed as though in the vast distance of a hope and salvation from God. Yet John announced the arrival of God to his people and he pointed him out before the masses. John was greater because his message was greater and his nearness to Christ was greater. And yet, even though John was the greatest man to have been born to that point, he was less than even the least of the kingdom of heaven. That is a nonsense statement unless we understand that all human greatness is rightly only defined in relationship to Christ. If we don't understand that crucial point, then this statement seems like foolishness. Because it is the relationship to Christ is the only metric ultimately that matters. And that shouldn't be a controversial statement. The value of mankind in general is tied to their being created in the image of God. During that literal six-day creation, when God created man, he created man, male and female, in his own image. That is why mankind is the pinnacle of creation, above even the angels, because mankind alone is created in the image of God, created to take dominion over the creation of God and to rule over it as God on this earth. That is the value of mankind. That is why even in extreme deformity, we do not consider human life worthless. That is why it is not mental faculty that determines the worth of a person. It is that they are created in the image of God, and no matter how broken that may be because of sin, they represent the pinnacle of creation because they represent God. 
But we can take that a step further. Jesus is, despite what anybody might think to the contrary, Jesus is the center and the purpose of all history. That means he is the center of the scriptures. Jesus, not Israel, not the church, Jesus is the center of it all. Everyone else has their place and their importance based on or relative to their position or connection to Jesus. And so it makes sense that the man who directly preceded Christ on this earth, the man who announced the arrival of the Messiah to the people of God, would be considered the greatest man up until that point in the unfolding plan of redemption of God. That part makes sense. And if we understand why that makes sense, then it will also make sense to us why the least of the kingdom of heaven is greater even than John. Because the lowliest Christian, the lowliest Christian, is more closely united with and identified by Christ than even was the greatest of the prophets ever to walk the face of this earth, the cousin and forerunner of Christ himself. Remember, the kingdom of God was announced as being very near by John. And then it was said to be present in the earthly ministry of Christ, the king. And then that kingdom became victorious and ascended in power as Christ rose from the dead, defeating death and every enemy, and ascended to the throne at the right hand of the Father. Then at Pentecost, that victorious king sent his spirit, sent the promised helper to his people. So that the least of those who are indwelled in this way by the Spirit of Christ, the least of them are greater than John because they have been united to Christ by the same Spirit that unites the Father to the Son. They enjoy a communion with the Father and the Son that no Old Testament saint could have had imagined or understood. John was the last and greatest of the Old Covenant prophets. Yet the greatness of union with Christ that is enjoyed by every citizen of the kingdom of heaven is categorically different and superior than what John experienced. Yes, our salvation is the same. Men have always been saved by faith in the promises of God according to the nature of how that has been revealed at the time. Greater knowledge making greater faith. But to us, our experience of that salvation in Christ is more full, more tangible, more clear, and more defined. Tied in with that is also the greatness of the expectation of those who are citizens of the kingdom. In case we thought we were going to get off easy and it was just going to be about how great we are, if John was expected to be great, and John was great because of his nearness to Christ, then the least of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven is to be greater than John. And not just in, in a spiritual feel-good-about-yourself sense, in tangible ways to stand strong, to be resolute, to be mighty and faithful. And if you doubt that, just go back and read through the Sermon on the Mount again. 
called to have a righteousness greater than the Pharisees, to judge the motives of our heart and hold ourselves accountable to sins that are in our heart, not simply our actions, to do things in private that we honor God and not men, to stand resolute, to resist evil and temptation, to fight against persecution, and ultimately to stand, because if one does not stand and endure until the end, they are not truly citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So beloved Christian, you are greater even than John the Baptist. If you are truly in Christ, then this is true. So live like it. God's spirit within you gives you a strength and an assurance that even John could not know. That no Old Testament saint knew. Not in the same radical and permanent way that is ours. So do not buy the lie that you are weak or insignificant. If you are a child of God, then in Christ you are mighty. You are a soldier in the kingdom that will conquer every corner of creation. And if you have not stood fast against the ever-changing winds of this world, or if you have spent your time and energy grasping after the soft comforts of the compromised, then I command you to repent. God has called you to greater things. Go forth in greater faithfulness. Repent and believe the gospel, or else quit pretending and no longer profane the name of my Lord. He is worthy of more. He has called us to more. He has given us more, and he expects and demands more. Well, Jesus continued with a statement about how the kingdom of heaven had been and would be treated with violence. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence taken by force, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. We know that it's true that the purposes of God throughout all of history have been violently opposed. We see this first play out way back in the garden. First man and first woman. Evil forces seeking to undo what God had done. Seeking to foil God's plan and purpose in his creation. And throughout history, nations have risen up in rebellion against God's plan and purpose. Nation after nation coming against the plan and people of God. The enemy was even able to work within the nation called by God to bring about the salvation of man. As Jesus made clear in the parable of the vineyard owner and the wicked tenants. That the people have become corrupt and yet God sent prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger to call them back to what they had owed him. Called them back to what they were supposed to be and yet ultimately the violence against the kingdom would culminate in the grossest act of injustice in all of history in the murder of the son of God in human flesh. So this kingdom of God had suffered violence from the very beginning. 
specifically in view in this passage, is that unique time in history where there was a change of the age underway. The timing when the old covenant and the new overlapped momentarily. John was an old covenant prophet, and yet he was the herald of the kingdom's arrival, which would bring about the inauguration of the new covenant in Christ. John proclaimed the nearness of the kingdom, and John faced violent opposition. The message of the kingdom itself faced violent opposition, to the point where John ended up in prison and would eventually lose his life for it. Remember that Jesus promised his disciples that they would face violence. That they would face violence even from their family members who would deliver them over to death on account of the message of the kingdom of God. Well, it was in face of such rampant opposition that the kingdom needed the miraculous to attest to the, its arrival and its advance. So the revelation of the unique authority of Jesus, as we have seen as a major theme throughout the Gospel of Matthew, time and again, as Matthew has shown us, that Jesus had authority over sickness, over death, over evil spirits, over nature itself. He had authority over all things. That authority that was manifested through the miracles of Christ testified to the arrival of the kingdom, testified to the arrival of God's Messiah as there was supernatural power bringing about its advance. So the wicked, by their violence, could not stop God's plan from coming to fruition, nor could they, by their strength, try to bend what was happening to their will. But Jesus continued by making explicit where it was elsewhere implied that John, as the herald of the kingdom of heaven on earth, the forerunner of the Messiah to God's people, that John was the promised returning of the prophet Elijah. For all the prophets and law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who he has an ear to hear, let him hear. Remember, as we said earlier, the final prophetic word that had been given to the nation of Israel before the four-century time of silence promised that the, uh, there be arrival of the prophet Elijah before the terrible day of the Lord. Don't have time this morning to go there, but look uh, sometime this week, look through chapter 4 of Malachi, or better yet, just read the whole book of Malachi. It's short, it's quick to see how that played out, that final word to God's people, that there was judgment, that God was not pleased by their religion. He was not pleased by their sacrifice. And that God was going to send Elijah, and then would come the terrible day of the Lord. There was a finality to the ministry of John. He was the greatest that he had ever been, and John was the last, or the, 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 the final person in an era the prophets and the law all pointed forward to what John was giving witness to, that pivotal moment in history. He was the herald to that great climax of all of history, the event that would forever alter how we even reckon time, the arrival of God on this earth. Everything had been moving and building toward that point for that event. 
in the arrival of the Messiah, the fullness of the revelation of God was revealed to his people. Everything from that point on would look back to what had already been accomplished. Or when we do look forward, it is simply to see how all those things that have already happened will take shape and unfold and work themselves out through history. Even those who hate God cannot help but acknowledge the importance of the arrival of Christ on this earth, as they must give some account for why all of time counted down, and then suddenly time started to count up. Change the name and terminology, if you will. But Christ on this earth is the climax of history. Well, we know the rest of the story. We can easily accept that John was the Elijah to be sent to the people before the terrible day of the Lord. Because we know that within a single generation of John, destruction did fall upon the nation of Israel in 70 AD. We know that that promised destruction was soon to come. The terrible day of the Lord did fall on his people. And yet we acknowledge that that would have been a very difficult message to hear for the crowds around him. I don't even know how we can begin to imagine standing in their shoes. They were witness to the kind of universal realignment of creation that only those who were alive at the fall or those who will be alive at the return of Christ at the end of the age could possibly understand. Everything in history was building to the moment in which they were alive. That wild man prophet that they had gone out into the wilderness to see, the man who broke the four-century silence of God was even more important than they could understand because he signified a greater change than they could imagine. The importance of that brief moment in history and of the last and greatest prophet of God to his people to bear witness to that moment, the importance of that cannot be overstated. And yet everything that had come before paled in comparison to what God was about to do. All of this points to the wonder and the majesty of the gospel. All of history previous anticipated it. All of history before was desperate for it as creation itself groaned for the redemption of God's people, groaned for the restoration of God's creation, to be freed from the curse. Everything pointed forward to it. And all of history now looks back and gives witness to the power of what was accomplished as God walked this earth. Beloved of God, the wonder and power of the gospel of Jesus, which captures the essence of the single greatest event in all of history, the wonder and power of the gospel is yours in Christ. By his spirit, you have been given something in all its strength and importance that even John the Baptist did not possess as John was someone in the old still looking forward and anticipating what was about to be real for all of God's true people. We cannot allow 
the wonder of the gospel. We cannot allow the new creation that we are in Christ. We cannot allow what Christ has purchased for us and what he is doing in us and promised to do in us. We cannot allow that to become trivial or inconsequential in our estimation. Far too often Christians live as though their weakness and their frailty is what defines them. And yet, Scripture tells us that God's power is made complete, made perfect in our weakness. When we are weak, then we are strong, because it is not ultimately about us. It is about Christ in us. It is not our weakness, but God's strength that truly defines the Christian. It is Christ within us, not what we bring to the table, that determines the position and the power and the worth of the believer. So beloved, reflect anew at the wonder of what God has done for us in the gospel of Christ. Put to death the lies that we are bound in this life to be defined by our weakness and our frailty. And believe God when he tells us that our lives are in fact hid in Christ. And that in Christ we are called to wonderful and marvelous things. He is our strength. He is our purpose. He is our glory. So go forth and live as Christ in this world. Father, we give you all the honor and glory and praise. Pray that you would make these words real in our hearts, that you would not let us remain as we were before we were confronted by your word, but that we would be changed, made more like Christ. To not believe the lies of the enemy, but to understand the, the wonder of what the gospel has done for us and who we are to be, even the least of us in the kingdom, who we are to be in this world as we have Christ within us, as we are Christ in this world. Pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.